It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, in a video released shortly after his return to the White House from Walter Reed Hospital, President Trump sought to play down the peril of the virus that has killed more than 210,000 Americans since February. Let's take a listen. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. That was President Trump speaking in a video. Let's get some color on some of those points there. We can do that with Dr. Amish Abalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, We should note that the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio and TV operation. Dr. Abalja, thanks so much for joining us. What were your thoughts as to President uh, President Trump and his comments since leaving the hospital that don't let it dominate you. He even made it in a tweet today comparing it to the flu. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think these are kind of misguided statements. And the fact is, coronavirus is dominating us and it's dominating us because we failed to control it. And we have still no ability to test, trace and isolate. And until we do, the virus is going to dominate us, whether or not we want to or not. And this isn't something to compare to influenza. This is at least six times more fatal than influenza. And influenza isn't uh, a worldwide calamity and disruption the way COVID-19 is. So I think this is the president getting back to uh, his his standard downplaying misinformation and outright lies about the virus that he himself luckily has survived. Dr. Adalja, should everybody get the exact same course of treatment that the president has gotten? No, each person's treatment is individualized based upon what types of symptoms they're having. So if somebody needs oxygen, they they usually do get remdesivir and dexamethasone. That's part of the standard of care for individuals who require oxygen. The Regeneron antibody treatment that he got on compassionate use, that's not available to the general public. It's in the clinical trials right now. So that isn't something that we give to people. We don't know if it works yet. Uh, We don't know if it worked even in the president's case, but the, the steroids and the remdesivir are our standard of care for oxygen, patients that need oxygen. Doctor, I know, I know the president is not your uh, patient, but in your opinion, based upon the knowledge that we have publicly available, should he have left the hospital? Well, I think I've had patients that do well and they get discharged pretty quickly and, and turn around quickly, even when they've been on oxygen. So, so I, do, I do think it's something that you have to look at. Is he on a good trajectory? Have his symptoms improved? Is he no longer requiring supplemental oxygen? And then the other question is, where are you sending him to? Are you sending him to somewhere that's safe, where 
He has support in case he gets into trouble again. And obviously the White House is not the same thing as sending him to an apartment uh, somewhere where there's nobody to help him walk up four flights of stairs. So the White House has a sophisticated medical unit which can give supplemental oxygen, which can give intravenous drugs. They have round-the-clock doctors and nurses and other medical professionals there. So he really isn't going home in the sense that you and I might be going home. He's going to basically an advanced almost almost an advanced hospital in, in many by many standards apart from putting other people at risk when he takes off the mask indoors at the white house or when he takes a car ride with secret service agents albeit in ppe potentially what about the idea that he is being active on these drugs does it mean that he's doing himself some damage if he feels good and gets active or is that totally fine you, if you feel good then you know make use of your body while you can well, we want people to re-engage with their activities of daily living in a measured way. We, want to, we don't want people to go too fast too quickly. So I think it's important that his doctors gauge it. And it's very hard to do that from a distance because I'm not his physician to know exactly how much trouble he has doing activities of daily living. But we do want people to not be bedridden and not, uh, not uh, uh, do anything because that also puts you at risk for complications. So if you are able to be active after you've recovered from COVID-19 or even during COVID-19, it's important to t- take a measured amount of activity and titrate that based on your symptoms and how you're doing overall. And that's something that his doctors hopefully are helping him to decide. Hmm. Doctor, do we know whether he is still infectious, the president? He, he is still infectious. We, we know that people are infectious for at least a period of 10 days from when symptoms occur. So he is still, con- is still contagious to other people, probably for a couple, at least several more days. Doctor, there's probably not much you can say about this, but isn't it concerning that cases are just proliferating now throughout the White House and all sorts of people that were involved in debate prep were at the Rose Garden, you know, and, and, and even staff at the White House. And presumably they'll get medical care, but this will put pressure on D.C. medical resources again. Yes, this is uh, unacceptable and inexcusable what's going on. This White House super spreader cluster needs to be investigated appropriately and an appropriate action taken. This is the biggest super spreading event we've seen in D.C., and it was in the White House, in the most protected place on the planet. And I think that this is something that we need to understand what the dynamics of transmission were there. We need to contact trace and case investigate to understand how far this will reach, because these people, although they were on federal property in the D.C. Public Health Department, doesn't have jurisdiction there. They are, a lot of them are D.C. residents and the D.C. Public Health uh, authorities need to contact trace those individuals to make sure that they're not starting chains of transmission that are going to land on vulnerable people. We've already had. The president hospitalized, and we have former Governor Christie hospitalized based on these events. So we don't want more people hospitalized because of the failure of the White House to actually take an event that they caused and perpetuated seriously. Do we know whether there is contact tracing going on for those people that were at the Rose Garden uh, event? What we've heard is that the D.C. public health has not had much uh, cooperation from from the White House. Wow. We've heard the CDC had a contact tracing team, but they're not doing it. So this is being handled internally from the White House. So like most things that have happened uh, regarding this, this is prob- this is going to be characterized by opaqueness and obfuscation. And so I'm not sure how much contact tracing is going on. We're hearing that people were not contacted. For example, uh, the the governor of, uh, of of Ohio said he was not contacted about the fact that people the, the debate had positive people there. So I, I'm unclear to how robust this contact tracing is going on. And and the president's physician, Dr. Connolly, has been no help in this manner. Uh, so it, I don't have a great confidence that they will be able to stop these chains of transmission because they're choosing not to stop those chains of transmission. 
Wow, just let that sink in for a second. Mm. Dr. Amish Adolja, thank you so much. Uh, really a great pleasure to speak with you always. Dr. Amish Adolja is Senior Scholar and Infectious Disease Physician at the Johns Hopkins Centre for Health Security. That is a pretty stunning turn of affairs. We we knew it, but to hear somebody who has treated patients, who has released patients, who, you know, yep. largely is, you know, watching what's going on and assuming the best, to hear this is pretty stunning, Paul. It really is. Uh, it just flies in the face of all the science that we know, that we know has worked so well, uh, which is, you know, wear your mask, uh, keep six feet apart, wash your hands. We know that here are the people in the metro New York area know it better than anybody. Uh, and not to see it followed by our leaders is uh, frustrating. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. During these tough times, do you find yourself looking for images of puppies online? <laughs> well, <laughs> if you do, then you definitely want to listen into our next interview because we're speaking with the CEO of Petco, who joined the company in 2018 after having worked for HP, PepsiCo for decades. So a lot of experience in corporate America and a little experience with pets, I'm sure. Let's welcome now Ron Coughlin, again, CEO of Petco. Ron, talk to us about the rise in pet adoptions and fostering during during the pandemic, it seems like it might be a good idea if you're ever going to do it, to do it now when you're probably more likely to be at home. Absolutely. Well, first of all, great. Thanks for having me. Um, if you look at people at home, people may be looking, being a little disconcerted through the pandemic. Pets were a way to have accompaniment and uh, nurturing. And we're seeing um, growth like we haven't seen in years in pet adoptions, pet fostering, and uh, new pets in households. Bank of America just did a study, and 37% of households in that study reported having a new pet. We have people calling our stores waiting to see when we'll have new reptiles, birds, fish, et cetera. So, uh, pets are <laughs> That's not what I was now. expecting. <laughs> so, Ron, just give us a sense of how your company, Petco, has been dealing with the pandemic and, and maybe some changes you've been forced to make and, and how you're thinking about your business. Yeah, well, first, it started with keeping everyone safe, whether it's our customers or whether it's our employees. We put a lot of effort into shipping you know, swimming pools of sanitizers, football fields of masks. Um, in New York, we shifted our format, closed the front of the store, went to Delhi order format where our, uh, our team members shopped for you. So we did all that, and I was very proud and am proud that uh, our COVID penetration amongst our team is one-third the national average, despite folks uh, interacting with humans all day long. We also stood up curbside pickup in two weeks. We added 500 ship-from-store locations, so our stores now are mini distribution centers. Uh, so a lot of fast work. But what this really solidified for us is we have a role to play in taking care of pets and uh, our mission of improving lives and being a health and wellness company for pets. Ron, what's the update on IPO plans? Listen, uh, we, we have more customers coming to us for more reasons, which is good. And whenever you have success, people start talking, but we don't comment on any such, uh, such thing. So, Ron, talk to us about, you know, how, how, how has your business been? I'm guessing you know, sales are up. We see the industry sales, uh, presumably pet sales or, or pet uh, adoptions and pet ownership is up. Is that translating into your business? 
like I said, we have more customers coming. Um, they are buying more food, buying more uh, grooming, vaccinations. One of the things that's interesting is people are home all day, right? So they know that Fluffy needed to be groomed. They remember that Rover needed a vaccination. Uh, so um, that the explosion of pets and people spending more time with their pets has been good for us. But one of the things that um, you know we take very seriously is our role. And uh, today we're announcing that we are eliminating shock collars. Um, we uh, codified our mission of being all about improving lives of pets and pet parents. And we just decided that shock collars aren't consistent with that. So uh, we are eliminating shock collars from our stores starting today and actually starting a petition uh, to have other retailers do similarly and offering folks um, free uh, training class online uh, to replace it. Well, that sounds very reasonable. I'm sure pets, even in the uh, training process, will be happy not to be shocked, (laughs) seriously. But that said, that just brings up the idea of people getting sort of, you know, having strange tastes let's put it that way and i wonder after the launch of tiger king on netflix did you see an increase in requests for sort of strange animals wild animals uh, unusual animals yeah our our companion animal business uh is doing very well uh, in terms of strange animals we'll leave that to the to the tiger king but uh, our our folks in our stores do a great job well you said reptiles they're pretty strange to me yeah, we, we, well to some, they're strange. To others, uh, they're, they're accompaniment. And we're very proud of uh, the teams that handle those products. Mm. Ron, how do you give us a sense of how Petco competes with some of the, the big Amazons of the world and some of the big chain department stores where the pet department is just one department of an you know, overall bigger enterprise? How do you traditionally compete against those bigger players? Yeah, so let me, let me start at the top. I, I, I talked about our mission of improving lives of pets and pet parents. No other company in, um, whether it's the general merchandise like the ones you mentioned, or even in the pet space is dedicated to health and wellness for pets. So think of us as the CVS or the Whole Foods in the pet space. And we think that's a unique place, one. Two, nobody else has a fully integrated solution from the training to the grooming to the veterinary care to um, food that has no artificial flavors and colors. Nobody else carries that whole, uh, has that whole suite of services for a one-stop shop for a pet parent that's looking for health and wellness products for their, um, for their pet. And what we launched uh, last week was uh, Vital Care. And that is a membership program for a monthly fee. You get that nail trim, you get that vaccination, and you get discounts on your food. And nobody else can do that because nobody else has a fully integrated solution. Briefly, Ron, because we're out of time, but uh, any COVID-19 protection products or any inquiries on those things? Um, In terms of uh, our our stores and our partners, absolutely. You know, the, the, the pieces about uh, COVID in pets, it's, it was one in a million anecdotal, so we have not seen that as uh, any issue that people need to worry about. That's good. Ron Coughlin, CEO of Petco, joining us to talk to us about how the pet industry is doing in the pandemic and uh, pet adoptions uh, and sales up uh, 4%. That's kind of the headline for me. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're going to consult Ira Jersey right now, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, we had a little bit of a move yesterday, sort of woke everybody up that looks at the bond market. It wasn't massive in historic terms, but it was a good five basis points for the 10-year and, uh, you know, another few basis points for the 30-year. But we're back to sort of stagnation again today. Did the bond market price in a less contested election and now we're done? Yeah, I don't. I I don't know if it was as much as uh, not contested election, but I think the market is thinking that there's a higher probability of a Biden victory, and 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 so what that means is you're going to have uh, if if Joe Biden wins, more likely a, a larger fiscal stimulus plan, and that's going to do two things. One, it should theoretically be better for the economy in general than um, than, than say a smaller fiscal stimulus that you'd probably get with a split government, and, and two, and and I think this is just as important is um, if you do get that larger fiscal stimulus, you're going to need, there's going to be more bonds out there and more supply. So so that's what, one of the reasons why you saw that steepening of the yield curve. And, and we, we broke some pretty important levels, Vani. So so 1.57% on the 30-year bond was uh, was the high from the, the, the uh, post-COVID um, uh, crisis period. And now that we've broken that, we now target yields that are actually about 20 basis points above where we are now. So so, so I think that that's like that. Those are the numbers you have to think about now as we get closer to the election. If it looks like Biden wins, um, you know, we'll, we might creep higher in yield with the, the yield curve steepening. So I were uh, Fed Chairman Powell speaking to a group of economists today, which sounds just like a hoot, I'm sure. Um, is <laughs> I've there, been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems like we hear from Chairman Powell almost on a weekly basis here. So I'm not expecting much here, but. Is there anything different here? Is this an, an audience that wants to hear something perhaps different or has the ability to ask questions where we might get some news out of this? I don't. I think that he'll continue to be pretty coy and and basically reiterate what has been said at press conferences. I mean, one of the things now, Paul, is because we have press conferences at every single meeting, it's going to be really difficult for the Fed chair in particular to say anything that's significantly different than what he said just uh, you know just a week ago uh, or two weeks ago at at the uh, at the press conference after the last meeting. I think it's still important to listen to the mosaic that's coming out with all the different Fed members because. You know, having an idea about what each member is thinking about for future policy matters. So, you know, what are their own individual tendencies when it comes to how long that they'll let inflation run hot before they want to be hawkish? So, obviously, some some members of the committee are are going to be more hawkish, others more dovish, and and understanding the dynamics between those individual players will uh, will be key. But but to your point, I don't think Powell today is going to say much uh, much that's going to going to be. He will have to give his opinion on this bond market move, though, right, Ira? And not just that, but Charlie Evans was out yesterday sort of saying 2.5%. At some point, we'll need to know exactly what Powell thinks beyond 2%. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so certainly Powell, as a member, like he'll wind up maybe saying something like, 
Um, you know, my personal opinion, this is not the opinion of the committee, is that we should let it run hot until it seems like it's sustainable and we'll have to hike. But, but you know, that's going to be, you know, kind of um, nondescript enough that it's not going to give us that much new information. Um, when it comes to, you know, the, the, uh, the bond market move, it's still within mostly the ranges that we've seen. So, you know, the 10-year yield is still well within the ranges that we've seen over the last four months. So, um, so I don't, I don't think that they'll, he'll talk about it. I think that maybe he'll couch the steepening of the yield curve as a positive sign that the market thinks that growth and inflation are going to be higher in the future. Um, but, um, but, but, you know, other than that, it, talking about it being optimi- an optimistic view, I don't think you can say much more about the bond market move. Ira, what is this Federal Reserve actually doing in terms of being in the market, buying bonds? How active have they been? What have they been buying? Yeah, so, so, well, they haven't actually changed very much at all. We put out a weekly note every Friday with what they've purchased in that week. Um, and the uh, basically, they're still just buying every day a little bit and uh, uh, all throughout the curve. They haven't changed that. And most of their purchases are actually in the front end of the curve. So they're in low-risk, shorter-maturity bonds. And uh, so, so you know, that's keeping that part of the, the yield curve uh, very t- tame and timid. So even though you had a pretty decent move yesterday and say the 10-year and the 30-year, the front end still didn't move very much, um, partially because interest rates are expected to be low for a long period of time, but also in part, certainly, that uh, b- b- because the Fed is buying just about everything that it can in, uh, in that kind of five years and in uh, maturity range. So, Ira, what would you anticipate after the election? Say we, we do get that Biden win that the bond market's pricing in, do we not see much movement then? Yeah, I, I think you, you'll see, still see a little bit. I mean, I think the market is still going to be a little bit um, on edge and, and not fully price in a Biden victory unless it's absolutely obvious. And I th- do think that the market is a little bit concerned about whether or not there'll be some hiccups in, you know, counting ballots and and uh, and the count by mail. Uh, so, so I do think that once it's there's a declared victor, uh, regardless of who it is, I do think that the bond market will reprice a little bit. Um, you know, how much that is is always a matter of, of subjectivity. Um, but I. I do think that we could reach, for example, certainly the yield highs that we saw a couple of, um, um, a couple of months ago, kind of up, up near uh, 1.8% on, uh, on the 30-year. Um, so, again, right. like constrained, but not, um, but, but not a massive move. Hey, Ira, thanks so much for joining us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers all things for the Fed, all things in the Treasury market. Uh, he puts out daily notes. He has a weekly note. Lots of great stuff in there all available on the Bloomberg Terminal by typing B-I-GO. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. (laughs) 
It is time now for, as you heard, Bloomberg Opinion. We want to get to Bloomberg Opinion technology columnist based in Europe, Alex Webb. And the reason we want to get to Alex Webb is because we have many stories to discuss with him. We want to talk about the Cineworld Group closures, which is very, very sad. We were talking about this yesterday uh, and other things. We just got word that a judge is going to hold a hearing on November 4th on... Uh, Commerce Department order banning TikTok so we can talk about that later in the conversation but first Alex you know obviously it's a very sad day when all of the movie theatres goes down basically any hope that these theatres might reopen at some point? Yes I think there, there is uh, we don't know when uh, but Cineworld has said it's going to shut down its 600 plus theatres in the UK and the US um, that isn't a permanent closure, but it does potentially leave um, 45,000 people out of work. Uh, the kind of note for optimism here is that the, the straw that broke the camel's back, in a sense, was, was MGM deciding to push the release of the new Bond film until April. But it is doing just that. It's pushing it to April. That means that it hopes clearly that there will be a cinema audience by then. And uh, it, it hasn't decided to push it online. Alex, to me, for somebody who's followed this industry for close to 30 years, it's kind of a chicken and the egg issue for me. Are people not going to theaters because there's not enough good content or are they not going to theaters because they don't want to be stuffed into a confined space uh, during a pandemic? What are the companies saying are the real reasons for, I guess, you know, temporarily closing down these theaters? So I, the companies are saying it's the, the lack of the films. Uh, they have reopened or had reopened uh, screens with quite strict, under the quite strict guidance that, for example, exists in the UK, where ultimately they're only allowed to fill about 30% of each screen. Um, but they had been saying that, you know, they were, they were filling that 30%. And uh, they were hoping then that the um, uh, release of No Time to Die, that's the title of the new film, the new Bond film, um, would reinvigorate a certain, to a certain extent cinema going. Other, um, other cinema chains, for example, in the UK, we have Odeon, still open on weekends, AMC in the US as well. So uh, they still think there's an audience there. Uh, it's just a company like Cineworld in particular, which has significant debt exposure because of um, not least the acquisition of Regal Cinemas in the US. That means it has higher operating costs in the sense that it's got to service its debt. And um, so it's trying to reserve its cash um, in order to be able to do that more effectively. Yes, it's said, according to your column, it was burning through as much as $60 million of cash a month with screens partially open in September. What are the margins for a screening, Alex? Obviously, the the movie theatres have to pay the studios and so on, and, and they they do count on things like popcorn sales to help out. And obviously that's not happening now either. So how, you know, do we have any idea what kind of capacity would need to be filled in order for a movie theater to be able to operate, you know, in the green? And it, it is quite hard to get the full granularity on that. Broadly speaking, they're relatively um, healthy and, in a sense, re- recession-proof businesses. You know, Cineworld typically reports EBITDA of 20 to 30% revenue. That has, of course, massively dropped off right now. Um, and, and the way that the, the, the kind of breakdown of, of, of revenue well, the way that revenue is broken down is that maybe 50% is actually the ticket sales and then they have merchandising and, and uh, food uh, uh, food sales on top of that, about half and half. Uh, 
clearly getting people into the cinemas means you're still able to sell um, you know, popcorn and drinks and all those sort of things. A lot of cinemas in the US we had seen have been offering discounts to get them into the cinema and hope they make the money up on some of those other offers, um, offerings. So uh, the difficulty right now is cinema studios are having to work out whether they can make enough money back from just putting something online, um, whether by selling it or, or just selling it to a um, uh, streamer, or whether they need the cinematic release to make up, in the case of No Time to Die, their $250 million budget, and that probably excludes the marketing costs. So it seems as though the, the studios think that they do really need to um, release these things cinematically, in, or theatrically, sorry, in order to, to cover their costs and make the sort of um, returns that warranted that upfront investment. And so that, in a sense, is good news for the, um, the cinema industry of cinema operators because it, they hope at least that when we're clear of the virus the audiences will return and the studios will return it's interesting alex another problem for uh the film exhibitors is a problem that the studios have been effectively shut down for six to seven months no film or tvs have really been made because everybody has been kind of shut down so that suggests that even when they do open up there might be a lack of supply from that perspective I think, interestingly, that's more likely to be a problem for the streamers because um, you know, you're still getting TV shows and films released on the streaming platforms. Because we're not seeing stuff released in cinemas and theatres, that is being pushed back to when the theatres open again. So you're getting a kind of uh, a build-up of, of, of supply there, which will all of a sudden drop, hopefully, sometime next year. Meanwhile, there is perhaps come the spring next year, because we haven't had much production for the past six, eight months, um, there's going to be perhaps a dearth of supply for the streamers and, and the TV networks. And, and I think that might be more of a concern for them um, than it is for the cinemas themselves. Although, I don't know, would you disagree with that sort of um, interpretation? That's what I, some people have been suggesting to me. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's a, we'll have to see, uh, but there really is going to be a lack of supply here, I think, for everybody. And it's going to take a little bit of a catch-up, I guess. Um, and, you know, as you're, you're pointing out, the broadcast and cable networks, you know, have really cut back on their scripted programming because there's just not that much there. And they're relying more and more on the... Uh, uh, on uh, you know, kind of reality TV. So it's a real problem for everybody, just in terms of lack of supply there, Alex. Can I jump in and ask Alex what he makes of this Reuters report that a judge will hold a hearing November 4th and whether to block the Commerce Department order that would effectively ban TikTok in the United States? Alex, your gut feeling, what, what will happen with TikTok? Can it really be banned? I, I think it seems unlikely there'll be, a, you know, an an outright ban on it. Uh, the, the, the risks, I mean, obviously this is getting into real legal sort of, a legal labyrinth here, but then um, it's hard to know what, on what basis exactly it, it is being banned. Uh, the Commerce Department is trying to impose things upon it, but there, does it have the legal basis to do so? And ultimately that's what a judge has to decide upon. I'm really unsure. <laughs> The risk of, of retaliatory actions from China for other pieces of the U.S. tech um, economy, it seems quite high, but equally a judge isn't necessarily, it's not his job to take into account those kind of um, diplomatic considerations. So uh, it, it's very, very difficult one to predict. 
Well, there's nothing Alex. else happening that day, right? Yeah, that's right. A little bit of an election coming up. So Alex Webb, European technology columnist uh, for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us from London. Again, kind of the, the key issue here for the, the film of businesses. Not a lot of films out there. The films that are out there, they're getting pushed to next year. So if you're a, uh, you know, you know, a, a movie uh, house, what do you do? If you're a theater, what do you do? You don't have any content. People are concerned about coming into your theaters. You close down temporarily, at least, and that's what we're seeing across the globe. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.